So one thing you probably don't know about me is I cannot start my day without a cup of black coffee with a splash of oat milk. But the one thing I do not love about it, how dehydrating it can be. The solution, adding in a packet of Element, my new favorite electrolyte drink mix. Their limited edition chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry flavors are meant to be enjoyed piping hot and they are a major upgrade to my morning coffee. So why electrolytes? Shouldn't you just drink more water? Well, we actually need salt to stay hydrated. And these packets from Element have the perfect ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to keep you feeling and performing your best. Right now, Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets, a great way to find your favorite flavor. Get yours at drinkelement.com forward slash girlboss. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash girlboss. Hello and welcome back to Girl Boss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder and CEO of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today I'm joined with Liz, Girl Boss's general manager, and Victoria, Girl Boss's senior writer, who both work behind the scenes to bring this very podcast to life. I am really, really excited. And I think we have to just acknowledge that this episode will be the first ever man that we have on Girl Boss Radio. It's a big girl boss milestone. I honestly never thought this would happen. Avery, you were the one to bring the idea of having a man on the podcast for the first time. And (laughs) I'll be honest, when you first brought this up, I was like, no, absolutely not. But as time wore on, I don't either you wore me down or the idea just started to appeal to me a little bit more. And let's get into why. Yeah. I mean, like I love centering women and non-binary. We've had some trans folks voices on this podcast over time, but I do think that women and non-binary folks continue to hold the burden of these conversations and to focus on the solutions and moving the needle forward. This isn't an effort for us to necessarily decenter women's voices, but for us to understand what men are doing to also support us in our collective fight towards our own liberation. Also, what I believe is that we've been having these conversations for millennia in echo chambers, and it's not that we're not holding space for men to be a part of them. That's not the point. But I do think that we should be asking men more pointed questions around like what they're doing to support us. So yeah, that was where it came from. Not to mention some of the podcast guests that I put in front of both of you that I really wanted to have conversations with, I just really admire. And I think they're really interesting. And I learn a lot from them. So I thought that the audience here would too. So Avery, I'm curious, how did you come across James? I know we were talking about seeing his stuff on IG. So definitely share a little bit more about that. So I have a very unique fascination with divorce. I would say it has forever been one of my biggest fears. I've never been married. The longest relationship I've been in has been like four years. I would say I'm probably someone that leans heavier towards having commitment issues or challenges with commitment. Every single person I've dated, now I'm 35, I've thought, okay, this could be the one. And every single time it ended, I felt like it was a massive failure because I was only further and further away from this ideal of love that I've grown up around. And it's very much been the norm for me. So divorce has always felt like a bit of a death sentence. So now as I'm older and I have more perspective and I have friends that are going through divorces or separations, I'm wanting to familiarize myself with it so it's not as scary. I came across James' content and I just absolutely love his framing and the way he talks about divorce is like new chapters and how it's a new beginning. I think that although he is a divorce lawyer, he has got a really interesting positive spin on it. 
So yeah, I know Liz, you're aware of him before as well, because you and I kind of geeked out. I think James was the entry point to us actually having a man on the podcast, to be honest. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. He was an early contender and we're so glad that he said yes and agreed to come on the podcast. Yeah, for me, I think I discovered him like I discover a lot of things on TikTok. And I was in Victoria, British Columbia for work and I was getting ready in the bathroom and I had his TikTok just 10 minute streams at a time pulled up on my phone, just watching obsessively about love and compatibility and marriage and pros and cons of that. And I've never been married, so I've never been divorced. But I did last year go through legal separation with my partner of nine and a half years. And because we owned property together, we had to get legally separated and get lawyers involved and divide our assets. And, you know, it was one of the most grown up and expensive things I have ever done. We're still terrific friends that we should get an award for the world's most amicable breakup. I'll probably send him this episode after (laughs) it's done. Maybe he'll listen to it. I hope. But my theory is and James touches on this, is that you shouldn't be learning about law and prenups and divorce when you're already in it. That's something you should go into any relationship knowing. I was 22 when we got together. I didn't get a prenup when I was 22. No one told me to get a prenup when I was 22. And James talks about this too. It's so easy to enter into marriage. It's so easy to enter into long-term legal commitment, but exiting it is hard and messy. And as I've alluded, expensive. Now going forward, if I ever choose to shack up with anyone ever again, don't know. You better believe there will be a extensive legal protection. And again, this isn't to say that we screwed each other over. Like I said, it was a really amicable, fair breakup. But think about how many people are staying in relationships longer than maybe they want to because they just don't understand how to even go about initiating a legal separation or a divorce because that information is kept secret and it's behind lawyers' offices' doors. And you're not learning about that stuff until you're already in that office and you've already committed to this decision. So I think information obviously is very powerful. It can be very illuminating and and hopeful for people to know their options and get that prenup. I'm curious, if you don't mind sharing, how much did the lawyer fees cost? Yeah, I'm totally open to sharing. Uh, Between like five and $6,000, which again is not really high. James says that if he's arguing a divorce in court, his retainer is $25,000. So we used a mediator. We used the same lawyer, both of us. So there wasn't two legal teams battling it out and racking up billable hours, which was a very conscious choice on our part. And also we tried to do all of the negotiating up front just between the two of us so that by the time we got to the lawyer, we just were like, we already decided this and we already decided this, just do the paperwork. And I remember at one point our lawyer was asking us like, oh, did you want to use this time to divide up your kitchen dishware and your furniture? And we were both like, no, we're not spending $400 an hour of your time dividing our crate and barrel (laughs) chipped dishware. So we left that for ourselves to work out, which helped keep the costs down. Thank you for sharing. And honestly, I really love the point that you made about people staying in relationships because they don't necessarily have the financial means to leave. And I know that this is a huge thing that impacts women where there is a wealth gap between them and their partner, specifically women that are in heterosexual relationships. But then also for mothers, I think that oftentimes the big narrative is that men are so hard done by divorce. They're the ones that are on the receiving end of the financial burden. They're the ones that are having to pay the alimony. They're the ones that are having to like give up their assets where we know that women are now fastly more and more out earning their significant others, specifically in heterosexual relationships. In some cases, they're the ones that either have more ownership over property than the other. So there's just a lot of nuance that's not necessarily being 
talked about, I find. And even with James, a lot of the podcasts that I observed him on and listened to were really targeted towards men. So I was like, I want to hear what this man has to say, what James has to say in support of women navigating divorce. How can we support ourselves and how can we prepare? Liz, yours is a really great example. You weren't even married and you had to engage a lawyer to get support with navigating that new chapter. Yeah, yeah. I like to joke that I went through all of the legal, the paperwork and the cost with none of the fun of the wedding. (laughs) And the stat that I had no idea until this conversation is that women are now initiating nearly 70% of all divorces, which is interesting. And something that James said that stuck out to me is they're doing it out of necessity. They don't want to initiate divorce, but they're doing it because they have to, which is really fascinating. Yeah, it's a very popular statistic that I think a lot of us have been hearing. But the problem is, is we actually don't have a lot of context into what's being captured within that specific statistics. But yeah, to Victoria's point, I love that he actually speaks to how oftentimes when he's having a conversation with a woman who's trying to initiate a divorce, it's gone to the point where she has literally no other avenue but to do that, which I really appreciate because it doesn't further perpetuate this weird stereotype that women are out there as like gold diggers. Yeah. Or this idea that, you know, I think there is a lot of mass cultural dissatisfaction with men at large. So I think the 70% of divorce statistic is like a nice thing to trot out to be like, see, see, we all hate men so much. We're leaving them on mass. We're deciding we're making this decision. (laughs) And so many things that you'll hear on this podcast. It's never that simple. It's never that black and white. It's never binary. Yeah. And one thing I want to share too, and I'm curious if people listening will feel the same way. I nearly cried during a part of this conversation with James. I could tell that he and I both share that I'm a hopeful romantic at heart. I love love. It seems like he loves love too, which is quite interesting for a divorce lawyer because he's probably been around the demise and the breakdown of so many loving partnerships, probably enough to maybe discourage someone from believing in love. He really has a positive frame. So if you are someone that's listening that is perhaps thinking about going through a divorce or initiating a divorce, or you have gone through a divorce, you're navigating that process right now, I don't want to ruin it for you. But ultimately, he really talks about it as the beginning of a new chapter. I don't think that this will be a negative listen for you. I do think it's actually a really uplifting one. And I'm curious, like Victoria, Liz, do you feel the same way? Oh, 100%. That's why I said I would send this episode to my ex because it's like, look, see, we didn't fail. We just closed the chapter. There's a line that James uses that I love. It's like the barn burned down and now we can see the moon. It's cheesy, but it's true. Yeah, I love that. So I think on that note, Liz, let's get into the pod. James, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I am very excited to have this conversation today. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And honestly, thank you for being our first male guest. This is a huge moment in history for Girl Boss. This feels big for me, I have to tell you. And I, I'm very, I'm very proud. I hope that I can be worthy of it. I mean, that is, uh, I'm going to add this to my CV. I'm pretty stoked. For me, as someone that's always been like slightly obsessed with divorce and marriage and love, one place I wanted to start out is I want to get into your role as a divorce lawyer. Why divorce? Of all the things. Yeah, I'm curious. That's a great question. You know, I love it. I mean, I've been doing it 20 plus years. I still love it because personally, I think the reason it appealed to me and continues to appeal to me is we're just so full of shit, human beings. We're just full of it. More so now than ever with social media. (laughs) Whatever happens, they sort of seem to suggest they meant to do it. Oh, I meant to do that. I meant for that to fail. Divorce just felt so honest to me because no one meant for it to happen. Nobody, when they got married, 
was like, oh yeah, we'll do this for a couple of years and then we'll get divorced. It's just not the case. Like when you get married, you in good faith, you marry and say, yeah, I'm going to try to do this thing. You might have varying degrees of faith in how well it's going to work or varying degrees of commitment to it, but everybody kind of meant to stay married. And so it always felt to me divorce as an undeniable, I don't want to say failure, but you just can't pretend you meant to do it. And that feels to me like a radical opportunity for reinvention of yourself. Barnes burned down and now I can see the moon. It's this sense of, okay, this did not go the way I wanted it to or thought it was going to. And now what? I'll share a personal anecdote. I got divorced many years ago, 16 years ago from the mother of my kids. And we're still dear friends to this day. And she's a lovely person. She's been remarried for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. We've been great as co-parents together. When we split up, the kids were young, they were five and seven. We went to mediation. We had a very amicable divorce. And I rented a townhouse right down the street from her house so that our kids, who were quite little, could walk back and forth between our respective homes. And it worked out wonderfully because it really made their lives easier, which then made our lives easier. And it was a very nice thing. But I remember when we got divorced, I didn't have that much money yet. My practice wasn't really off the ground. And I had like $1,000 with which to furnish an entire three-bedroom townhouse. And so where do you go? You go to Ikea. And I went into like the couch section. I remember being shocked with the feeling of, wait, what couch would I want? Me. I'd never had to confront that thought before. And that was, for me, a really great metaphor for what I think can be very beautiful about divorce. It's an opportunity to figure out who you are, what you are, what should be important to you, how you want to spend your time and resources. It's an opportunity for tremendous growth. And to be part of people navigating that is actually a really life-affirming thing. It is My job is much less depressing than you would think because I approach it from the perspective of I am helping create the architecture for this person's next chapter. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Research suggests that women initiate divorce more than men, with approximately 70 to 75% of divorces being initiated by women. Why do you think this is? I'm glad you asked the question because it gets thrown around a tremendous amount, that statistic, whether you want to call it the manosphere or the red pills community or the black pill community, all of the sort of male-oriented spaces. It gets thrown out there a lot statistically, and it's an accurate statistic, but it gets put out there to suggest that women are marrying, availing themselves of some benefit, real or perceived, of marriage, and then like cashing out their chips by filing for divorce. And as a divorce lawyer in the trenches, I can tell you that that statistic is wildly misleading when used the way they're using it. Because what it really has to do with is who is filing an action. And to suggest that the person who files the action is the person who wanted to get divorced is incredibly misleading and false in my experience. Because I have countless clients over the last 20 years, as does every one of my colleagues, who do not want to file a divorce action, maybe don't even want their marriage to end, but their spouse, their husband, very often, just leaves, just leaves and stops paying the mortgage, doesn't contribute to the needs of the children, so will not voluntarily pay child support or spousal support, just simply leaves. And that puts a person in the position where I've had countless women come in my office and say, 
I need to get temporary child support. I need to get the mortgage paid. He's refusing to pay the utilities. He switched them all to my name. And now I don't have any income with which to pay because I've been a stay-at-home mom for a period of time. Or he out-earns me by 10 times and I can't carry all these bills on my own. And I say, okay, well, we have to file a divorce action. They go, no, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not the one who wants to get divorced. He is. He's sleeping with his secretary or he just left and said he needs to find himself. And I don't want to file because I don't want him to say, hey, look, you ended this marriage. I'm not the one who wants to end this marriage. And I explained to them that we can't ask a judge to issue temporary orders on a non-existent action. You have to file a divorce action in order to get any of the relief you're entitled to in connection with the dissolution of a marriage. So it's incredibly unfair to use that statistic to say, well, women are the ones who are getting sick of marriage or just ending the marriages, or they're the ones cashing out the chips, because it's just not an accurate reflection of the reality of what's going on there. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that it's not possible. Women very often commence divorce actions because they're having affairs or because they do want to avail themselves of some financial benefit. I'm not suggesting either gender is blameless in all marriages and all divorces, but to suggest that that percentage demonstrates something about the intentions of women filing for divorce is totally false and totally misleading. Yeah. And I really appreciate that because I think that what I've observed is a lot of men and hyper-conservative men framing this statistic as another reason why you shouldn't marry women. There's an argument that maybe women need to protect themselves. And we've seen some pretty interesting cases recently where men are filing for alimony and support from their wives or ex-wives. It's not at all uncommon. And I think there has been, even in the course of my career, which is now 23 years, I've seen tremendous changes in the issues that we're dealing with, right? So even 23 years ago, in the quote-unquote traditional gender roles, you'd have a breadwinner, successful executive or professional husband, and you'd have a spouse, a a woman who was, this is before marriage equality, who either was a stay-at-home parent or primarily focused on the children, or who had a job that was less lucrative, but certainly maybe rewarding in different ways. Now what we're seeing is, and by the way, a man theoretically in those days, could you afford that, right? Could you afford to marry someone? If you're a C-suite executive, you could afford to marry a yoga teacher and say, yes, pursue your passion, enjoy doing that, and I'll be the person who primarily earns for us. We're seeing a tremendous change in the power dynamic between men and women in terms of earning potential and earning capacity. And so women, in my experience now, there's many of them that are successful professionally, and they're doing the same thing that men did for many years. They're marrying a guy who's a chef, or they're marrying a guy who's an artist, or they're marrying a guy who's a yoga instructor, or a personal trainer, and who's not earning at the level that they are, but they have that same arrangement that has been around for a very long time, which is, I will be the breadwinner, you will pursue these passions or labors of love, and we'll have this polarity and synergy in our relationship. Well, the repercussion of that is there are more women who are being obliged to pay spousal support now, or what used to be called alimony. And I will tell you, having represented a lot of women who I have to give them the news that, yeah, you have to pay alimony to this guy, there definitely is a shock. I've seen the most Bella Abzug staunch feminist when I say, oh, you got to pay the unsuccessful musician boyfriend that you married and now has been a stay-at-home nothing, sits on the couch playing Call of Duty, and you owe him alimony. I've seen them go, wait a minute, he's a man. He's got to get out there and earn. I will say, I've had some male clients who were entitled to alimony 
and would not accept it. Interesting. I have to say in a 20 plus year career, I don't think I've ever had a female client who was entitled to alimony, offered alimony and refused to accept it. And again, I think that has to do with traditional gender roles and the idea that a man should be an earner and a woman is not necessarily defined by that. Yeah, there's definitely broader systems at play that are probably influencing that type of behavior and response to the opportunity for alimony. And one thing that I've thought about, because I've had this conversation with friends, because I've reflected myself on how I would feel generally as someone that describes themselves with a lot of feminist ideals and perspectives. Would I be upset if someone that I was with wanted to collect alimony from me? And I think the answer would be yes. And I'm going to share why. The reason why I would probably be somewhat offended or frustrated would be because I know that in most cases, the men that I've been with or dated in the past have had far more opportunities than I have and face less barriers than I have to gaining the success that I have achieved on my own. Sure. Is this something that maybe has come up in conversations with people before? Or You're saying like that would feel uncomfortable to me or it would feel unfair to me. And I would never argue with someone's right to feel that way. I think an argument can be made in both directions for that. It's one of the reasons why I think it's really good for people to either have a prenup or at least talk about having a prenup with each other. Yeah. Because it invites a discussion about what do we owe each other, right? In the event that this doesn't work out, because all marriages end, they end in death or divorce. So if this one doesn't end in death, what do we owe each other? That's a question worth asking your romantic partner. Theoretically, your romantic partner is a supporter, a cheerleader, a person who is helping you cope with and deal with. I do not believe personally that people's value is the purely capitalist definition of their ability to earn. I agree. In relationships, the person who is the earner and the person who supports that person and is the shelter in the storm for that person or is a consigliere or advisor to that person or helps them see their blind spots, they are as much of a contributor. That success would not have occurred if not for that person's contribution. None of us is alone in this. This idea that like we're an island and that our success is purely our own success, it's simply not. Like we are all interdependent and connected with each other and certainly in many ways connected to our romantic partner. Now, again, are there circumstances where you're succeeding in spite of your romantic partner rather than as a function of their assistance? Plenty. And thankfully, courts have wide discretion to look at those facts. And that's why what I do for a living as a trial lawyer is full contact storytelling. I go in and I say to a judge, like, hey, judge, this guy's a lazy stayabout who's done absolutely nothing during this marriage except create drag and friction for this person. And now they have the audacity to want to share in the fruits of their labors that they were able to succeed in spite of this person. Or if I'm on the other side, I go in and make the argument that, you know, look at how easy it is to now suggest that my client made no contribution because this person has economic leverage and they're trying to assert unfair financial domination over their partner. So it's really a question of the storytelling. You mentioned social media briefly, and I wanted to double down on that because I found an interesting statistic in my research. And studies indicate that excessive use of social media can be linked to higher divorce rates, and couples who use social media excessively are more likely to experience marital issues. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's funny because I read about that research as well, and I thought to myself, oh, is this being done by the Center for Pointing Out Obvious Things? We are prehistoric creatures living in medieval institutions with godlike technology in the palm of our hand. How do you think that's going to end up? Like, it's going to be a train wreck. 
And yeah, I mean, think of how many people's greatest hits you look at all day while living your gag reel. And by the way, when are you looking at your social media? When you're having a peak experience, you know, a wonderful meal, great sex, incredible conversation that you find very compelling, you're reading a book or watching a film that you love and are enjoying, you're not looking at your phone then. You're yeah. looking at your phone when you're bored. You're yeah. looking at your phone when you're kind of in transition. So you're not at your best moment when you're looking at everyone else's best moments. <laughs> and so, of course, like what effect is that going to have? How can you not compare yourself to the people who are presented to you. And it used to be the people presented to you were the people you saw on your street, the people you knew from school or work or church or whatever it was. And now it's just an endless stream of people. By the way, throw filters in the mix now. So now it's not even honest. You're looking at this, and of course it's going to lead to tremendous dissatisfaction with yourself, potentially dissatisfaction with your spouse, the activities you're engaging in, because people aren't posting like, yeah, we're sitting on the couch again tonight, they're mostly posting all the interesting things that they're doing. And, and you're looking at it when you're not doing interesting things. So I think there's so many reasons why social media is so toxic to relationships. I mean, in my book, there's a chapter called, if we were going to create an infidelity generating machine, it would be called Facebook. I would change that now to say it would be called Instagram, but they're both meta companies. Because Instagram, it creates so many opportunities to have interactions with potential romantic or sexual partners who you have no business talking to. Whether it's people from your past who remind you of a, a fonder time, or whether it's just people that you have some small thing in common with, like it's another parent on your kid's soccer team, or it's a person who works in some tangential role in your office, that you have a reason to be connected to them. And now you have all these entry points to like, oh, I saw you went on vacation. You posted those pictures. Where did you stay? I was thinking about going there. And now we're having a discussion about where'd you stay? Oh, it was nice, but I, you know, I didn't like the surfing. Oh, you surf? That's so cool. I've always wanted to try that. It's so easy to slide that into, oh, well, you know, I'd love to show you how to surf sometime. Or I'd love to catch up and talk about that. And now we're having all of these interactions, conversations, connections with people that we are human. We're prone to temptation. We want attention and affection from our partner. It's hard to give it and lovely and necessary to receive it. So, of course, it's understandable that, you know, people start to feel a distance between the two of them. And that is just ripe grounds for people to ultimately end up in my office. What are some topics that you think couples are not discussing that they should be discussing prior to getting married? I think the biggest one is what is the problem to which marriage is a solution for each of them? Why are we getting married? There's something odd to me about anything that is presumed as a culture, right? There was a long time where we presumed every woman wanted to have children. Every woman. Every woman wants to have children. If they don't, why? What's wrong? Was there a reason? Thankfully, I think we've transcended that as a culture. I think that presumptions about marriage, to me, are very odd. If I was in a very satisfying romantic relationship for three or four years, and I said to a friend, oh, we're going to get married, the answer would be, well, of course, that's great. It would not be, really? Why? You're so happy, the two of you. Why would you risk that? The divorce statistics, 56% of marriages end in divorce. It's almost reckless for you to do that. Why would you do it? It's not broke. Don't fix it. Why wouldn't you stay happy because you're happy? Why risk it? Whereas if I say, we've been together for a number of years and I'm talking to a friend and I say, yeah, we talked about it and we've decided we're definitely not getting married. 
it would be, oh, well, what's wrong there? Like, does Jim have, you know, attachment issues or intimacy issues? Is it a she? Or is there some skepticism that they don't really believe in the relationship? So there's a default. There's a presumption that marriage is good. And I don't know what that's rooted in. I really don't know what that's rooted in because all evidence to the contrary. And so I think it's useful for a couple to say, why do you want to get married? Because if the answer is, well, I don't want to be lonely. Well, you know, getting married is no guarantee for not being lonely. Or I want to be sure that we're going to have a sexual partner. Well, being married to someone is no guarantee that you're going to have sex with them any more than like living on the street of a restaurant is a guarantee you're going to eat. It doesn't really mean what you think it means. And you may not, by the way, if you don't have the discussion, really be on the same page as to why you're doing what you're doing. So I'm not saying everyone has to do things for the same reason, but it's useful to know your partner's reason for marrying. So that's a conversation to have. And then I think a lot of the conversations people need to have are very practical, which is, for example, we're going to disagree at some point. We're going to disagree as a couple. So when we do, when that invariably happens, what are the rules of engagement? Do you need a little time before we talk to digest things? Are you someone who doesn't do well when confronted with conflict? Or are you the, we cannot go to bed angry, we need to resolve this, I'm not going to be able to sleep or eat until we've worked it out? Because you shouldn't learn how to fight while you're in a fight. One of the greatest powers we have as humans is we have imagination. Yeah. And that imagination cripples us sometimes because we imagine all kinds of disastrous scenarios all the time of all the things that could go wrong, 1% of which actually do, right? But why not use that imagination and say, like, okay, so imagine this happens. How would we deal with it? And having those discussions, I think premarital counseling, if done right, would prevent the necessity of marriage counseling once you're off track. Whenever I hear from like Christian conservatives who I get in debates with all the time, they're always talking about we should eradicate no-fault divorce. We should make more barriers to exiting marriages. That feels very stupid to me. That's like, let's make it harder to get out of the burning house. I think it's better if you want to make a change to the law to facilitate successful marriages and minimize divorce, there should be more barriers to entry in marriage. I agree. So it should not be, once you're in, it's hard to get out. Think about it. You can just go pay somebody 50 bucks dressed like Elvis to marry you, and you just did the most legally significant thing you're going to do other than dying. And you don't even get a pamphlet explaining to you what happened to your legal rights and obligations. It breaks my heart when the first time someone learns about what happened legally when they got married is in my office when they've been married for 10 years. What are your thoughts on everyone having a prenup? I think everyone who marries should have a prenup, just like every car should have a seatbelt. I just think it's irresponsible not to. If you look at the statistics out there, prenups are binding Prenups, when they're done properly, are upheld. They're a low-cost tool. There is no divorce lawyer out there who is making a good living doing prenups. It is almost a loss leader for me when I do a prenup because you can do so much more with litigation, make so much more money helping people kill each other than being proactive for them. So look, I'd love to be put out of business. I don't think it's ever going to happen because people just are not doing the preventative maintenance. Just like they don't change the oil in their car, just like they don't get checkups every year at the dentist or every six months, just like they don't have a physical every year because they don't want to look at it. They want to cover their eyes and pretend that bad things don't exist because somehow that'll prevent bad things from happening. And that's insane. So I think even just talking about a prenup is a worthwhile exercise because it's going to be an invitation to speak about what you're afraid of, 
what the contingencies would be, what you think you may owe each other over time, what changes you might expect of each other in coming years, and how you might react to those things. So I'm a huge fan of prenups. I have seen a significant increase in the number of people who are getting them. The interesting thing is, there will never be reliable statistics on prenups and who has them because people lie all the time about <laughs> prenups. I have represented dozens at this point of high profile public figures in drafting a prenup and then seen them on Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood or in an interview talking about how, oh, we don't have a prenup. We're getting married. We don't have a prenup. And I, I know you do. I wrote it. It's in my safe. It's signed. Why do they lie? Because we have not normalized prenups. Normalized prenups. I have to tell you, I do see an increase in the number of young people who don't have anything yet. And that's the time to do a prenup. Because you come in and you say, look, we don't know what's going to happen from here. We don't have a crystal ball. Like, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. It's not going to happen. All the ideas you have, we don't know what it's going to be. But here's what a prenup gives you, ideally. A rule set. A rule set you both understand. So you know, if it's in my name, it's mine. If it's in your name, it's yours. If it's in joint names, we'll split it 50-50. And now, sorry, gang, you got to have a conversation with your partner. When a big bonus comes in at work and they put it all in their name, you got to go, hey, why are you putting that in your sole name? You know, why don't you put some of it in our joint account? And yeah, it's not comfortable, but it's a whole lot better then not knowing what the rule set is that governs this incredibly important relationship that you have and not finding out about it until the car has already crashed. Prenups give people, I think, not only an opportunity to have important discussions about what their values are, what's important to them, what they think they owe each other, but it also, when it's done right, it gives people a structure that requires them to continue to have conversations or, or, prevents the necessity of having endless conversations because at least you both know what the rules are now. And you can understand that if your partner wins the lottery and puts it all in their sole name, you go, okay, I see you. I see what you did there. We will never know how many people have prenups because prenups are not filed with a court unless you get divorced. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you in my experience, and I've done hundreds of prenups now, if not thousands, I have only had maybe five or six people I've done a prenup for who come back and have to get divorced. So I don't think that they're like going to someone else for the divorce. I really think prenups may be somewhat self-selecting. The kinds of people who can have discussions and enter into agreements of that kind are maybe the kind of people that don't cover their eyes and, and they don't play ostrich, you know, and, and because of that, they have a better success rate. I don't know, but we'll never know. We'll never have the statistics of it because all you're going to hear about is the rare occasion when somebody's prenup went poorly, you know, like you don't hear about all the planes that take off and land safely. You only hear about the ones that crash. So it's the same thing with prenups. How much does it cost to get a prenup? Depends on the complexity of what you're doing. I mean, the cheapest one's around $1,500. For me, the typical prenup, what I call a yours, mine, and ours, which is like the fairly standard generic prenup, between $2,500 and $3,500. Because it takes about three, four hours of attorney time to draft it, maybe an hour to go over it with you. The most important thing, I think, in a prenup is talking to a person before you draft it about what their rights would be in the absence of the prenup. So anytime you sign a contract, you're changing your rights and obligations. So it's important that you know what they were in the absence of the prenup. 
so that you can then understand how you modify them with the prenup. But the most expensive prenup I think I've ever done was probably like five grand. And just to put that in perspective, if I'm going to be hired for a litigated divorce, I take a $25,000 retainer. We're not making a lot of money on prenups. You know, it's no divorce lawyer is. So, I mean, the value that that can provide to someone. I've even had clients, like I said, who they have the prenup consult and then they realize they don't want to do a prenup or they're not going to do a prenup. But at least they've learned about what their rights were and obligations were when they're getting married and they go in with their eyes open. What's an evolution that you'd like to see in law as it relates to divorce? I'd like to see the economic playing field narrow out more. I don't want to sound like quasi-Marxist but when I say that there is no war but the class war. I do think that you know if it's not intersectional, it's not feminism. I think that economic issues have to be taken into consideration. And I have certainly seen that for all the progress that we have made when it comes to gender, when it comes to homophobia, heteronormativity, when it comes to racial imbalance, we have made almost no progress on socioeconomic status and access to justice. You still get as much justice as you can afford a lot of the time, and that is not a fair fight. It is not fair that if someone can afford to hire me, they have a significant tactical advantage over someone who can't. That is not right. Equal protection under law is not meant to be purely when it comes to gender, orientation, any of those things. It's meant to be access to justice as well. So I hope that we can make that change or see that change in my lifetime. But that's going to be harder to do. Any of these economic issues, there's tremendous, tremendous incentive for the power imbalance to stay the same and the billionaires to stay billionaires and everybody else to be the economic engine that sustains their earning capacity. We know that a lot of women are initiating divorce. The reasons why we're not necessarily sure of, and I know that you shared already in our conversation, that they're vast. But what advice do you have for women that are wanting to pursue initiating divorce? What are the initial steps that they have to take? Obviously, the best first step is to talk to counsel. You don't have to share with your partner that you're speaking to counsel. You have attorney-client privilege. I think just knowing the rules of engagement is really, really important. Knowing what your rights and obligations are sooner rather than later, I think that's really important and really healthy for people to do. So I would encourage that without question. There's a lot of different ways to end a relationship, and there's a lot of different ways to look at the end of a relationship. When you look at the end of a relationship as a failure, That's a very toxic thing for a human being to do. I'd love to see our culture get to a place where we see love, romantic loves, like chapters in a long story, where just because a marriage ends or a relationship ends, it doesn't mean it was a failure. It could just mean that for the moment that we shared together, we were right for each other, and then our needs changed and our paths diverged. Marriage is a technology that came into existence when people, you know, you were elderly if you lived to your 40s even your 30s. Women died giving birth. You know, Babies traditionally did not survive childbirth. Medicine was not what it is now. So we're getting married in our 20s or 30s or even 40s, and then we're living another 40, 50, 60 years. That's a tremendous journey to take with another person strapped to you. If it works, that's a wonderful thing, because think of all the things you've shared together and all the journey you've seen together and the ways you've ideally supported each other and maybe even failed each other and forgiven each other for the failures. But it also could be a tremendous amount of time for the two of you to grow apart. So I just don't think it has to be viewed the way it's traditionally viewed. I think it'd be really important for people to change the way they look at marriage and at failing in a relationship, for lack of a better term. I think the same way that you said normalize prenups, I think that we should 
normalize endings and new beginnings and transitions. You know, they're transitions. Yeah. Yeah. Evolutions. There's a lot of women that I know that feel stuck in relationships due to financial restrictions or because they are parents and they have children and they don't want to lose the access to their kids 24 seven. What advice do you have, I guess, on the tail end of the starting new chapters comment? What advice do you have to them? You know, the advice I would give to them is the advice I've, I've tried to give even to my sons and to friends over the years. And that is that I don't think there's a right or wrong way to live your life necessarily. I mean, there's obviously wrong action and right action maybe, but I just think if you're married, you have one set of problems and you don't have another. If you live full-time with your children and your co-parent, you have one set of problems, but you don't have another. Life is about picking the set of problems that you're comfortable with. When you're employed, you have one set of problems, but you don't have another. When you're unemployed, you have one set of problems, but you don't have another. You got to pick your set of problems and then make that decision. But don't think there's a right or wrong way when it comes to it. I don't think it's that clear. Again, one of the great shifts of the universe in the last couple decades is the realization that a lot of things we treated like they were binary or not binary then that's okay. That's a beautiful thing that we can paint the life we want to paint. And I think we need to get to that place where we get away from the idea that there are right and wrong ways when it comes to marriage, children, the roles that we serve within pair bonds, or even whether it's a pair bond or some other permutation that might serve our needs better. Okay. So I have two questions, one personal and another personal. One's going to be personal for me. One's going to be personal for you. Which one do you want to answer first? Either one, either one. They're both equally terrifying to me. So, (laughs) We'll start off with you. I'm curious because I know that you've been divorced already. I'm not sure about your marital situation at the moment. Do you see yourself remarrying? I don't believe marriage is something that is important to me. I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm very happy in that relationship. I don't see that marriage is a technology that makes sense to me. To put it in my parlance, what is the problem to which marriage is a solution? I don't know, whatever it is, it's not a problem I have. It's not something I need. If my partner felt strongly about marriage, I would be open to that conversation. But I don't think that it holds value to me. It wouldn't add anything. And I don't know that it's something I want to support. I don't think marriage needs any help being normalized from me. So that's my personal view of it. But I would never criticize. I love weddings. Like I love, and I don't mean it from a future business place. Like I get misty eyed at weddings. I love weddings. I think it's the triumph of faith over reason. I think it's so beautiful. And I find myself when I go to a wedding, like I am cheering for these people, you know, and I get legitimately misty eyed when I talk about marriage and love. And it's not the marriage. It's what the marriage symbolizes, which is this beautiful acknowledgement of our frailty, this feeling of like, oh my God, I, I need you. Like, I need your help to figure out who I am, you know, and how to do all of this. And to me, that's just the most beautiful, vulnerable, wonderful. There's nothing stronger than gentleness and nothing more gentle than real strength. And it takes so much strength to say, I need help. I need you to see my blind spots and help me. The idea that at the end of your life, another person could look at you and say, you help me figure out who I am and be the best version of who I am. And that you could say that to them, that gets me just so choked up to even think about that. But such a beautiful thought. How could you not ache for that and cheer for that and want to support that when you see it in other people? I always say when I go to weddings, heterosexual weddings in particular, when the bride walks in 
everybody's looking at the bride. Everybody. Like they all turn around and they're looking at the bride. And I always look at the groom. I always look at the groom because the groom is looking at the bride. And there's something to me so beautiful about this person seeing this person like, oh my God, we're getting married right now. To me, that's so lovely. I always quote one of my favorite poems. There's a Joseph Brodsky poem called A Song, and he wrote it when his wife passed away. And it's a lovely poem. The refrain of the poem is, I wish you were here, dear. I wish you were here. And one of the lines is, I wish I knew no astronomy when the stars appear. I always felt that way about being a divorce lawyer, is that I feel like I've been forced to see the astronomy. I've been forced to see how awful marriage can be for so many people, because I see its pathological outcome. But when I see a happy couple, it gives me tremendous joy. For someone who's like a grim reaper of marriage, whenever I'm out with people who are in relationships, I want to hear about how you met. I want to hear about what you like best about each other. I think love is wonderful. I don't know what the purpose of all of this is if it's not love. And I think that we can have that lifelong love without the technology of marriage. I know we can. I know we can. I don't know if as a culture, if we'll ever accept that or be honest about it, but I absolutely know it's not a prerequisite. And what I really appreciate about what you just shared around the joy that you get from being at weddings is I think that you can still have that experience. Like you can have multiple chapters of that too in your life, right? Which is really exciting. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's lovely to acknowledge that. I always told my sons growing up, and I still say it to them to this day, when they talk about their mom, or I talk about their mom, I always tell them that your mom was one of the great loves of my life, that she made me a better man, that I hope I made her life better, that we are better for the pairing. I know we are because we wouldn't have our sons, you know, and eventually maybe grandkids coming together created beautiful things for both of us. It made us both better people. We hurt each other as people do. There's no one I know and love that hasn't hurt me and that I haven't hurt them through my own frailty, through my own humanity, through their own frailty and humanity and foolishness. And I want to believe that all of the loves in our lives can be viewed that way, even when people have hurt us, even when we've hurt someone or failed someone. Yeah. Okay, so my personal question is, I'm single. I have zero prospects at the moment (laughs) towards marriage. I'm sure there's someone listening right now that actually is sharing that experience with me. What are some, I guess if we're using TikTok slang right now, red flags that I should look out for to avoid a potential divorce? And is that possible? We fall in love very quickly as a species. We feel attraction very quickly. And so, and I'm giving contrary advice here, you have to trust your gut and also not trust your gut. Whenever I'm talking to a friend and they're telling me about something going on in their life, and usually it's a romantic thing, but it might be something with their job or it might be something with their child, I'll often just ask them the same couple of questions. I'll say, well, what does your heart tell you? And then they'll give me that answer. And then I'll say, what does your head tell you? And then they'll give me that answer. And then I'll say, what does your gut tell you? And then they'll say that. And then I'll just say, I think you know the answer. And usually they get there. I haven't said anything except ask those three questions. But I think you can apply that to yourself as well. I think when you're interacting with a person, look, we feel this attraction, this deep attraction. And sometimes it's purely physical. Sometimes it's fascination. Like this person is just so interesting and compelling, you know? It could be any number of things. But I really do believe that asking yourself, what is my brain telling me about this person? What is my gut telling me about this person? 
that's a key question to ask is your heart, your brain, and your gut are probably telling you three different things. But if they're all on the same page, you got to listen. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to end off this conversation. I want to thank you for all of your insights and advice today and your vulnerability. It felt like a tremendous weight because I felt like I was representing all of manhood. (laughs) And that feels like a lot. I was never like a guy that they were like, that's a guy's guy. I'm not that guy. I felt a tremendous weight here. I hope I represented my gender in an acceptable way, but I'm very honored that I was invited and I really appreciate you taking the time. No, I so appreciate it. I think you did a great job. So thank you. For folks listening, if you agree, let us know. Give us feedback. This is a great opportunity for us to kind of hear what you thought about James. But James, thank you again for your energy. You'd be like, stick with the women, get rid of this guy. That's (laughs) what they're going to say. And I don't don't know that I blame them. So I'm an acquired taste. (laughs) I appreciate it. It was great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap on my conversation with James. What did you think about our first episode with a male guest? Please leave a comment or send us a DM on Instagram at girlboss to let us know. Tune in next week where Liz, Victoria, and I will be talking about lazy girl jobs and why I think they don't exist. Until then, please rate this episode or leave a comment to let us know what you thought. As usual, this podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.